0: This is episode 103 of the Creative Giant Show. I'm Charlie Gilkey. Thanks for joining me on today's Creative Wave. Serenovus Rao returns to the Creative Giant Show to jam about his new book, Unmistakable, Why Only is Better Than Best. We dive right in and discuss how only isn't enough, how the myth of easy creativity keeps us from doing our unmistakable work, and the neurotic creative process the Unmistakable team goes through to ship their work ready? Let's do this.
1: Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative Giants are talented renaissance souls
0: with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. If you're struggling to keep up with processing your email, SaneBox might be just the tool you need. It has saved me hours of time each month, and the amount of peace of mind I get from it is priceless. SaneBox sorts through your email and moves all of the trivial stuff into a different folder so the only messages in your inbox are the ones you actually want to see. Aside from removing all of the junk so you can focus on the messages that matter, there's this great feature called the black hole. Move an email into that folder and you'll never hear from the sender again. One and done. Just how we like it. Because email can be such a bear and keep you from finishing the stuff that matters, We worked out a great deal for our listeners. Visit SaneBox.com forward slash giant, and they'll throw in an extra $25 credit on top of the two-week free trial. You don't have to enter the credit card information unless you decide to buy, so there's really nothing to lose. Again, that's S-A-N-E-B-O-X.com forward slash giant. Hello, Creative Giants. I'm delighted to welcome Srini Rao back to the Creative Giants show. Srini is the host and founder of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where he's conducted over 600 interviews with thought leaders and people from all walks of life. He's written multiple books, including the Wall Street Journal bestseller, The Art of Being Unmistakable, and his new book, Unmistakable. He's also created, planned, and executed a 60-person conference called The Instigator Experience. Somewhere along the way, his compass led him in the direction of an economics degree from the University of California at Berkeley and an MBA from Pepperdine University. Extracting unmistakable stories out of people is his superpower. In his spare time, he's usually chasing some waves. Serenity, thanks for joining me again on today's episode. I'm really excited to jump into unmistakable and then talk about how this, how this unmistakable thing works out and how it worked out on you.
1: Yeah, it's uh it's good to be back here, you know. I, I think you and I spoke probably about a year ago maybe uh you know when uh, we were just kind of the, I was kind of introducing you to everything that I've been up to.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the main thesis there there's sort of two drives, right? From um unmistakable. One is to create art that is unmistakably you. It doesn't need a signature like you look at it and you can tell exactly whose work that is, right? So mm-hmm. that's one major aim. But there's also this premise underneath that, that what I'll pull it from the book. So don't aim to be the best aim to be the only. Mm-hmm. Okay? So I love the idea that that expresses at the same time that in some ways, you know, it's relatively simple to create your own category. Right. And so I'm, what I'm wondering is there seems to be at least another qualified qualifier needed here, like useful or delightful or mm-hmm. something that goes with onlyness. Cause you could be the only helium, um, helium smoking. I think it's smoke helium. I was going to screw that one up, but you could be the only of something really obscure and random, not really produce anything.
1: Yeah. I I think that that's a really, really wise observation because you're right. I mean, you do have to take into consideration, especially the idea that, okay, wait a minute, you could be the only who does something, but if an audience doesn't care about it, um, and, and it doesn't reach anybody, it's not unmistakable because you don't get to take, make that claim yourself It's really another person who determines, you know, okay, your work is so unique that I can't mistake it for anybody else. Um, and so, yeah, right. Something completely obscure that nobody has any value in. So I think maybe the idea of value is, is probably a big one there. Maybe is the other, um, you know, uh, qualifier in addition to value. I think we, we have to really emphasize quality because the, the bar has been significantly raised for what people expect from creators because we live in a world where it's very possible to create anything you want and start as quickly as you want. Uh, you know, you and I could start today and because of that, the internet is, is just littered with, you know, lousy projects, uh, things that aren't up to par and you know, you're not supposed to start out being good, but the problem is that people don't stick with it. So they never get to the point of being good. So value and quality I think are the two other qualifiers
0: I would add to that. Fantastic. And to be clear, I'm not jumping in like you're wrong. I'm just saying like, Hey, I think there's, this is important, but I I wouldn't want someone to take away the idea. Like, wait a second, I do need to produce value and that could be delight. It doesn't have to be utility, right? Which Mm -hmm. is normally, especially if you're on the nonfiction um, side of things, it's normally fleshed out in utility and entertainment and things like that. So, Mm -hmm. but it could be just you create art. That brings people to tears, right? Yeah. yeah. Create a yeah. message that brings people to tears. It's unmistakable, but mm-hmm. it has that emotive effect on people that really matters there.
1: Yeah. The emotive effect is a big one. I mean, I, I think that, um, we would all be better suited to ask ourselves, you know, what is the emotional response that I'm trying to elicit from an audience by creating what I'm creating? Because I think that if you look across art forms, uh, you know, whether it's music, whether it's movies, um, you know, whether it's books, um, you know, whether it's concerts, all of it, the things that we remember, the things that stay with us for a very long time. And the things that, that have an impact on us almost always happen because they elicit some sort of emotional response in us, and to not take that into consideration, I think, is really to, to take the soul out of your work in so many ways.
0: Yeah, and I wanted to slide in here because we kind of have mind share on this. When we say art, we don't just mean fine arts, we don't just mean something that you paint. Yeah, right? we're talking about whatever special thing that you do in the world. So it could be leadership, it could be organizational design, it could mm-hmm. be whatever that is, but that the way that you do that is unmistakable. Right. So,
1: yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, we, we look at things like you look at things that people like Nancy Duarte do, right. Nancy Duarte is absolutely an artist as far as I'm concerned, because I mean, she takes something that seems fairly mundane, which is designing PowerPoint presentations and she turns them into a work of art, something absolutely beautiful. Uh, So yeah. And and the, the interesting thing is that we're at this very cool inflection point, inflection point in our history, um, where unlike any other time, we have the ability and the opportunity to approach things as artists and to infuse all these very personal things and be much more expressed in everything that we create. Um, because everything at our disposal makes that possible.
0: You mentioned earlier, and I'm going to use the, um, the language that you use in the book, which is around surfing around, Mm -hmm. Um, on the one hand, the bar is set really high right for creative art, for art nowadays right um, mm-hmm. because it is a weird thing because the barrier is so low the bar is so high yeah yeah it's a, uh, it's an odd paradox for sure it's an odd paradox and i think you and i talked about this last time i think the challenge becomes because that bar is so high people don't even get out into the lineup they don't even try to catch the wave because they're like right. i'm not going to be able to do that so i'm not going to be able to produce that cuz i'm not there yet what would you just say to somebody in that situation? Yeah, I, I think
1: the the thing that you have to remember, and it's hard because you you forget that what we're often seeing is somebody in their present incarnation, not in all the steps that it took to become who they are. Um, you know, I didn't come out of the the womb like this. You know, with with all these really creative ideas and and this really beautiful website and all this stuff that we do and, and we're known for. Um, I mean, what at this point at the end of this year it'll be eight years and eight years, and I would say I'm just now starting to find my stride. And, you know, and one of the other things I said in the book is in the introduction, I said, it's seven years later, and I'm still learning how to surf. And I think that you know, one thing I've said before is I think if you're going to be an eternal master, then you have to be a perpetual student. Um, because I think the thing that all these people that you see who are incredible at what they do have in common is that they're committed to this process of lifelong learning. There's no moment of arrival. There's no I'm done. You know, you look at somebody like Seth Godin, who, you know, probably if he didn't want to, he wouldn't have to work anymore. Um, he could stop his daily blog, but why does he do it? Because it's what causes him to keep learning and growing and, and changing his mind about things and, you know, rethinking what, what he thought. And maybe, you know, even in moments for people like us, you know, admitting that, Hey, you know, something I thought before has changed now as a byproduct of something I've experienced. And so I, I think that, you know, you have to remember that everybody starts at zero Um, everybody starts at the same place, whether they're a billionaire or a blogger with rare exceptions, like Donald Trump, who probably, you know, somehow fell into some money, but let's not even go there. Um, yeah, but for the most part, we're all playing on, you know, a somewhat even field. I mean, you know, there are, there are situations that we have to actually acknowledge and say, okay, there've been lucky breaks along the way. Like I happened to get into podcasting way before everybody else did. Um, that was very fortunate. That's serendipitous. You know, you couldn't have predicted that I happened to be lucky enough to have an editor at Penguin find something I wrote. There are absolutely those things. And, and I want to make sure we acknowledge those lucky breaks because they do happen. But that being said, those lucky breaks are often the byproduct of opportunity, you know, of, of, or of actually putting your work out in the world and doing it and, you know, getting better and learning. So the thing is that everybody starts out not knowing how to surf and they're always continually learning how to surf, you know, so you see people that are actually catching waves and, and, you know, actually having fun. That's because they put in the water time. You know, I've seen this pattern over and over again with friends. Um, I've had friends who want to learn how to surf and they will come one day, you know, and it looks like such a blast. And then they, they realize that it's not going to be much of a blast, at least for the first few sessions. I, 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 always have to tell them, I said, you know, if you are serious about this, it's not going to be today that you, you stand up probably like today will probably be one of the worst surf days you ever have. You're going to fall a lot. You're going to take water up the nose. You're going to you know, be a nuisance to other surfers. But if you come back over and over at some point it'll, it'll tip and it'll start to be fun. But the thing is most people don't want to go through the pain in order to get to the fun. Um, and, and that's what I would say is, you know, what are you willing to endure to get what you want?
0: I would say that, and also set um, some some threshold for what you're going to say. So, for instance, um, when we talk to different people, I'm like, you know, well, I'll I'll say to my in my case, whenever I'm trying something new, I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this thing for ten times. I'm going to do it ten times before I decide whether I like it or not, mm-hmm. because I know during those first ten times, I'm probably not going to like it because I don't like not being good at something. Yeah, right. I don't like looking like an idiot. I don't like all of those different things, but I know that for any new thing, I'm going to go through that period. And so I'm just going to say, you know what, 10, I just got to suck it up, get through there, do the deliberate practice, do the best that I can, and then determine, is this fun? Not, you know, from the beginning.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's such a, a wise observation. You know, I think it, it echoes something I said in the book about getting too invested to quit. You know, the guy who told me go 50 times and after 50 times, You're just you put so much time in that you're like there's no way I'm going to quit now. And the funny thing is, if you're willing to put in those 50 times, suddenly you know you you get to invest to quit. It's kind of you know, let's say you develop a daily writing habit and you do it for 50 days. 50 days in a lifetime is nothing. That's really a small amount of time to put into something. Uh, But the thing is that the ability to take something and stick with it for 50 days will do more for you than whatever byproduct might come about. It's it's not it's not the outcome of those 50 days. It's who you become as a result of those 50 days. And that's the case with so many goals. It will teach you that you're capable of sticking with something. Um, so that will build your confidence and that in turn leads to all these other things. Um, so you'll, you'll have all these byproducts. but if you can find that one thing and the only purpose of it is, is to adopt the behavior, the behavior will lead to a lot of other changes.
0: Yeah. There's a quote here. I'm going to screw it up. Cause I always do when I don't remember them, but it's like, um, at first we make our habits and then our habits make us.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, right. that's a good way to put it.
0: And so that—that's just kind of those things. You don't commit to the outcome. You commit to just doing it, and then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, while we're talking about do it, let's, let's pull in deliberate practice from the book. I'm so thankful that you put in deliberate practice because when you think about deliberate practice, which isn't just practice, right? It's Mm -hmm. not just showing up and sort of going through the motions, a very intentional way of of looking at your performance, looking at the process, getting external feedback. There's like four steps, right? Mm -hmm. Um, book talent is overrated by Jeff Colvin is actually really great on this one. Um, you know, the thing when we start talking about I'm a coach, you know this, right? Everybody knows this, listen to the podcast. The thing about that is when you start talking about deliberate practice, it sounds suspiciously like work, right? Well, that's because it is. <laughs> um, so let's go into that a little bit more because I think it's because... In many ways, when we talk about art and we talk about creativity, we Mm -hmm. put it on sort of that fun, light passion side. Yeah. And whenever you start talking about, and you're going to have to work, you're going to have to put the time in, you're going to have to get to 2,000 words a day. Everybody's like, but isn't this supposed to be fun? Like, isn't it supposed to be effortless? Yeah. So no, it's not supposed to be effortless. It's supposed to be painful. There
1: are supposed to be parts that suck. And if you're not willing to endure those parts that suck, then, you know, you're not going to get better. Like there are absolutely parts that are going to be hard. You know, if you, if you, you know, I I just had a chance to speak with Andres Ericsson, the guy who literally created the term deliberate practice. And, you know, if you, you look at it across all peak performers, there are periods in which they are going through things that are painful. It's not supposed to be pleasurable because if it's just pleasurable and easy, you're in your comfort zone the whole time. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. And the only way you get better is by pushing into situations that you're not comfortable with. You know, for me, that might be interviewing somebody who falls into a domain that is just Totally different than anything that I've ever done. Um, it might be exploring other genres. I mean, you know, remember I used music in my talk as we were talking about. That was pushing an edge that I couldn't tell whether it was gonna work or not. Um, and the only way I would figure that out is by trying it and, you know, practicing it over and over. And and, you know, you when you do a speech, for example, numerous rehearsals, you go back, you look at the video, you say, okay, well, what worked here? What didn't work here? I mean, my entire speech preparation practice process is, you know, kind of a, an example of delivery practice, like looking at other people's talks, taking feedback, um, you know, rehearsing in different ways, then, you know, finding out what sections don't have flow to them and saying, okay, how do I rehearse this one slide over and over so that when I deliver it, it'll be like that. Um, and so I, I think that we, we have this idea that it shouldn't be painful, that it should be fun and we shouldn't have to work hard because, um, you know, we live in this very sort of happy, you know, new agey, self help driven world where everybody talks about, you know, Oh, you know, go with what feels good. And yeah, I mean, there's such thing as intuition, but there's this myth that trusting your intuition is going to be this incredibly blissful thing, which if it was, everybody would follow their intuition. You know, your intuition isn't always going to lead to bliss. In a lot of cases, it will lead you to a lot of pain. But it's what's on the other side of that that you're really after, and so absolutely, it's supposed to be work. Um, you should feel drained after deliberate practice. You should feel like you've been pushed. Uh, you know, when when we do projects with Mars Dorian, you know, there there are moments um, when I have absolutely pushed into his limits, and I know I have. Um, you know, we did these movie posters that I showed you during the the talk that I gave at Wayfinder Weekend, where we were both at, and I can tell you the amount of work that went into that was unlike anything Mars had ever had to do. Nobody had pushed him like that before. But the byproduct was incredible. And, you know, as much as he hated me for it during the process, the moment people walked into that room, they, I knew from that day forward, they would never forget Mars Dorian. And so I think that, you know, we have to really consider this if you're serious, if you want to make, you know, yourself get to the point where you're being considered a professional, whether you're, you know, wanting to make a career out of something, then you have to be okay with the fact that there aren't going to be parts of it that are fun.
0: Yeah, you know, I think what we have to look at is as artists, and it's kind of as life, it's not that hard to be third string right? It's not that hard to be third string. You can kind of show up, sit the bench, you know, run through the motion, a little bit harder to be second string. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but really if you're going to be that first string player or that unmistakable player that's out on the field, it takes a lot of work. Right. And so I think that there's a sort of, um, we get comfortable with being, you know, second tier. We, we Mm -hmm. get comfortable being known, but not the best, known, Mm -hmm. but not the only that, you know, I, one way i would say to start getting towards that unmistakable category is to put in the work right you oh, said that's, that's put in work. The, the deliberate practice and so well, and so few people do you know that that's one
1: of your big competitive advantages is you know you don't you know you can outwork almost anybody um so i i i i'm glad that you brought a sports analogy up seeing as the fact that i'm not really a sports fan but i like sports movies and Fr- mm-hmm. i was just watching the first episode of friday night lights last night um, and you've seen Friday Night Lights, I'm assuming.
0: I think I've seen the first episode, but yeah, okay. keep going.
1: So Tell the, us about it. like one of the best you know forms of storytelling uh, that I've ever seen. And and there's uh, you know basically what happens is the the starting quarterback who is basically you know just a top notch quarterback headed for the NFL. I mean, just a star athlete goes down in the very first game and gets injured, and they have to replace him with a kid who's never taken a snap, who's just a backup quarterback on the team, and he he doesn't really even play. And suddenly he finds himself in a game having to play. But then the second episode comes around and the coach tells him, you know, look, we got a lot of work to do. Um, and he, and one of my, my favorite line, in fact, I quoted it at the book. He said, you know, you need to know this offense. He said, you need to know this offense so well that your children are going to know this offense in their DNA. And I, I thought that was fitting. And I said, that's how I think you have to treat the work that you're doing. Like it has to be that ingrained into who you are and you have to, take that, take it that seriously without taking yourself seriously and have that kind of commitment to it so that it is something that is, you know, it's so baked into your DNA that people
0: can't help but, you know, be drawn to it. That's fantastic. I'm going to, um, back up just a little bit. Cause you mentioned your creative process Yeah, uh, when it comes to doing the unmistakable work that you do. Mm. Walk us through what that actually looks like. It's a bit neurotic, but, um, I, I think that, that, you know, uh,
1: you know, we borrowed ideas from a lot of different people. You know, one is, is a guy named Peter Sims who wrote an amazing book called little bets, which was um, about the entire creative process that people like Pixar, people like Steve jobs, people like Chris Rock, all of them do, you know, so Chris Rock, when he does a stand-up comedy tour, he goes to a local comedy club um, and he does open mic nights like Chris Rock, you know, who is an iconic comedian goes to open mic nights and he tests material that has never been used before and some of it bombs and so what he does with that is he goes and he keeps testing and testing so that by the time you see chris rock on a national comedy tour all the material has been tested for effectiveness so we borrowed from that idea big time um because the thing is that we realized you know you don't want to do anything big and put all this effort into something that nobody has ever seen before so little bets you know if you if you, if you look even in my writing process snippets of what I will be putting out into the world will show up on Facebook, um, throughout a creative process. And even though that made my publishers cringe, I was like, listen, I'm like, I can't mm-hmm. not tease them with stuff, little things here and there that people have read. Cause you know, it keeps them anticipating this whole time. Okay. What's coming? Like, what is this all going to look like when it, it is packaged together? So there's this sense of creating anticipation with an audience. Um, but more than anything, it's a little bit, it's a test. It's like, does this resonate? Does it strike a chord? Is it, is it, is it hitting people in the face with a crowbar as my friend Ashley Ambridge would say? Um, and if it doesn't, you're like, okay, that's a cut. No. Then, you know, we we will look at, even when it comes to the artistic process, we'll say, okay, like we start with layout and design and everybody on the team gives feedback on a layout and design of something. And and we, you know, we will go back and forth and we're like, it's not there yet. It's not there yet. Um, you know, we'll make people redo things. We always have to tell people who work with us. We're like, look, our process is a little neurotic. We're going to ask for tons of changes and tons of revisions, uh, you know, so much so that, you know, even when penguin designed the book cover, we did something like 20 book covers before we agreed that this was the one. Um, and you know what it paid off because everybody has commented on the cover. Uh, so there's, you know, there, there's uh, almost, like I said, it's somewhat neurotic, but You know, it's constantly looking at, is this ready? And, and, you know, taking it apart. We're never, you never, one, never accept the first thing. Um, That's one thing is, is the first version we always know is not going to be up to our standard. We've just come to accept that. Um, So we we tell people like, just know the first version is probably not going to be the one that we're going to want. Uh, the other thing is we always ask everybody for two options for everything. Um, and this, I actually learned from a Steve jobs book. Uh, th- there's a book called inside Steve's brain, at, which is all about, you know, his working process at Apple. One of the things that he was famous for is he said that anytime somebody brought him a design or a layout of something, he always asked for two options. Um, and the reason we asked for two options is because, you know, if somebody gives you one option, it's probably not going to be their best work. Whereas if you give them two, you're gonna push them a little bit because they're gonna to have to do something differently. They have to look different. Uh, so there's that part of it. And then there's iteration after iteration after iteration. It's kind of like, okay, you know, this like change this little thing. I mean, the smallest detail. So for example, we're working on an animated short right now and in one of the frames, there's a box of crayons. And you know, we've been through all these frames before. And I remember looking at it, I said, change the color of the box of crayons from a green box to a black box and the logo that's on the block box make it red. It's like this small on the screen. Nobody would notice that. But that's you know the kind of insanity that goes into this. So looking at little details, never settling, and then you know you kind of realize all of this is about the kinds of things that maybe one person will notice. And for the one person who notices, it's totally worth it. Um, if you listen to an episode of the Unmistakable Creative, like you listen to how it plays, the moment you press play, you hear the most compelling part of the conversation, what we call a magic moment. Um, you know, Again, not something we can take credit for, uh, that, that term, but every product, every brand, every service has what's known as a magic moment in which the brand, the customer or a member of the audience falls in love with the product and becomes a fan. And so for us, that's usually one moment in a conversation. So that's why it's at the very beginning. The moment you press play, you hear that. Um, And, and, you know, so it's about constantly thinking about the, the little details. I think AJ Leon really said it best when he said, here's the secret to winning every single time, calculate people's expectations and exceed them. And so everything we do is about looking at what people would expect from that thing. So, you know, we did a free ebook called the compass. It looks nothing like what a free ebook should look like because you know, we, we spent probably a thousand dollars in the design alone to get it to look what it looked like. Um, and it was free, which is, you know, and people don't do stuff like that. It's not. And so in my mind, you know, that, that wasn't about showing off. It was about being thoughtful. It was about, you know, we want to basically have pieces of work that are just beyond what people would expect. It's not just a plain old, you know, PDF download. And, and so I, I always, you know, it takes us back to really you know, what all of this stems from is this idea of creating an emotional impact on the people that you work with. So, um, little bets, lots of iteration, multiple versions of everything. And then, um, you know, uh, the willingness to, to have the entire team give feedback through the process. So we, we go in, you know, with, with no ego about any of it. It's, it's, you know, and you look at this and we've learned this from reading about the creative process at places like Pixar. So we've brought in elements from, you know, things that we've seen as sort of, Cultural people who set the bar for things, and and so in my mind, you know, the, like the idea of custom illustrating every single name tag at an event, you know, that's neurotic and, and time consuming, and yet totally worth it because somebody it said to me, nobody will ever throw this away. I said, I know that's the point, and so it's it's about doing things like that. That's that's you know that's our creative process in a nutshell. So
0: let's wrap that in because one of the parts of becoming unmistakable is frequency. Mm-hmm. Right. You can't just do something once and yeah, yeah, no yeah absolutely. but there's this tension between mm-hmm. frequency, especially when, as we live in this fast paced creative world, you got to tweet this, you got to write a post about that. You got to get it out the door. So and so forth. Right, right. And this level of thoughtfulness and quality. Mm-hmm. So how in your creative process, do you thread that needle between frequency and high quality in that way? That's a good question. I mean, I, I
1: think you know, part of the, what helps is, is putting those little teasers out into the world. So while we're fully developing something, people get sort of a sneak peek at it so we can still keep them engaged in the process. So it seems like the frequency is high. Um, but there's a point at which your frequency and your ability to create quality become one and the same because you've just reached a point in skill level where you can do that. So I can produce two episodes a week that I know will be high quality. Beyond that, I, I think we would be doing ourselves and our listeners a disservice, uh, you know, and, and like, I, I think, you know, a lot of people do that because like, oh, I want to just keep up. And it's like, you would be better off producing one amazing show a week and doing it consistently than sh- five shitty shows a week, just because, you know, some online marketer says that's the way to do it.
0: We learned that with the Creative Giant show, by the way, we were doing two a week, not saying that the other ones were shitty, but the, uh, but the thing about it was, is like one, We're doing a lot more work. It's not twice the quality. Yeah. Um, There you go. That's that right there. Yeah. And the other thing about it was, and this is important, um, and it's hard to work out. I'm just going to throw this out there. Um, We actually had enough of our super fans and people who really love the show write us and were like, I can't keep up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Um, Because they've got other podcasts, so on and so forth. And so they were feeling sort of the content fatigue on their end. I'm like, well, that sucks, right? Because part of what we want people to feel is not that sense of rushy, rushy, like get it done, so on and so forth, but to have the space to think and feel. Mm -hmm. And so we were unintentionally corrupting the very thing that we want people to do with the show. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. So I'm really interesting, right? Because a lot of times we write the book, we write the material that teaches us what we still need to be learning and practicing. Sometimes we write about stuff we've learned, but a lot of times it's what we must most need to practice. Mm -hmm. So from the book um, and from the principles you've laid out, which are the ones that are the most challenging for you to practice and and get into the zone with?
1: Oh, yeah. I think the the biggest things for me, probably the most challenging thing, you know, I wrote this section called the impact zone, which is all about dealing with the, the psychological challenges. For me, it's mindset. Um, the actual work itself has never been an issue, I don't think. I mean, I've always had a strong work ethic when it comes to this. I've always been consistent. And because of that consistency, I've improved with time. But um, I still get stressed out very easily over things. So, you know, for example, I think Monday I was waiting for email, email blasts to go out uh, that would be, you know, mentioning the book on on people's email list. And I was feeling anxious. Um, and you know, I, I I was, you know, I, I know we still have like a number of, of media appearances to drop, but you know, I was looking at the rankings yesterday. I was like, okay, this is making me anxious. Like there's not as many reviews yet as I want. And and this is, you know, and I I realized all this stuff is just a recipe for madness, you know, like to to constant like on day one, one of my friends was like, you haven't been checking Amazon all day. I was like, dude, I went surfing. Like I went and the best thing I could do for myself that morning was not be on Amazon all day and look at the rankings, but to get out of here and go surf because I knew I'm like, otherwise I'll check, you know, and my friend thought that was crazy. And I'm like, to me, the other thing is crazy. You know, it'd be insane to be checking all day because there's so much that is out of your control after a certain point, right? Like after the book is out in the world, like, and I've done all planted all the seeds I can and, you know, I've done all the, the outreach that I can and I've done my part, now there's a certain part of this. You know, Ryan Holiday and I talked about this. He said at a certain point, your part in this process is done, and you have to be okay with that. Uh, because if you are not being okay, you're not okay with that. Then you know that becomes a recipe for anxiety and disappointment. And that's 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 something I re- I struggle with. It's it's hard for me. You know, like I I'm kind of someone over our listeners like there's only 16 reviews so far. I was like, yeah, they're rolling in, and then. In one way, I think I've learned how to to deal with this much better, but it's still, I would say, my greatest challenge. It's the thing I have to work on the most.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a line from the Te Ching that goes, um, the master does her work and then steps away. Yeah. Yeah. Very simple. But when you realize how hard it is to figure out where that line is between your mm-hmm. work when it's time to step away and being able to step away, like if you master that, that's just one of those things that I think, um, especially when you're in such a data driven Yes. Environment, right. Like if we didn't know, like, I mean, imagine, you know, 20 years ago when there was no Amazon, there was nothing like, you got to check or you got to notice like three months later of like mm-hmm. you know, from your editor, like this is how many books you sold. That was all you can do. But in our world, like you can check constantly, constantly. That doesn't really do any, any. And,
1: and the weird thing is it's like the, the the it's kind of like checking your Google analytics, thinking that checking them is going to make them go up, you know? And it's the work that makes the change. Like, so I know there are certain things that we're doing that are going to drive sales. Um, and so, and you know, some of those haven't happened yet. Uh, they're, they're in, you know, they're coming up and to not, you know, so I have to kind of keep reminding myself, okay, you know what? Like a lot of this is just starting to happen. Like this thing came out. What's today? Today's the fourth. It came out two days ago, Tuesday. So, I uh, you know, Ryan holiday sent me an email saying, you know, congratulations, the sprint is over, now the marathon begins. So I, I think that's really what we have to always keep in mind is yeah. that we're in a marathon, not a sprint.
0: While we're talking about marathons, there's there's a story, and I want I want you to tell the story because I want other people to hear it. There's a story that um I tell your story about this. But you know, you have this great idea, mm-hmm. you get mysteriously found by an editor, they love your book, they love the first draft you put it out there and the world buys it. And then it, like the world is happy. Mm -hmm. Um, I think when you get into it, a lot of times that is not actually what happens, right? So um, there's a challenge that comes when you're doing long form, long form creativity. It's different than writing blog posts. It's different than writing social media and email blast. Mm -hmm. what, What of that was the hardest challenge for you? to really yeah. get into getting this book done. So the, the I think the, the actual writing of it, the process of sitting down daily
1: and writing that was easy cause I'd already had that habit. You know, I, I think that was, that was not particularly challenging. Um, and then, you know, of course, structuring it is, was one of my challenges. So I had to work with a writing coach, the structuring part, you know, we, we spent a month doing an outline that made a huge difference in my ability to, to work quickly and, and to be focused, but I'll tell you the hardest thing. So the writing coach I worked with, she had edited multiple books for people like Seth Godin and um, you know, I specifically chose her for a couple of reasons. One was that she wasn't from this sort of inner circle of like entrepreneurial lifestyles. And they gave me one other option who had edited books for you know, mutual friends of ours. And I said, no, I don't want this person mainly because I knew the voice of the book would be really different if I worked with her instead. The other reason is she said she would be tough on me. Um, and I knew she would. I think the hardest part was learning not to take her feedback personally, uh, because the feedback was not sugarcoated at all. It was just like, this is crap. Why are you saying this? Or this doesn't make any sense or you're all over the place or how does this relate to unmistakable? it took me about a month before I really understood that, okay, her job is to do exactly this (laughs) because her job is to push and push and push until what I have delivered is the best it can possibly be. Um, You know, there was another really interesting thing that happened in in the launch process and uh, it was based on, on some feedback from Seth Godin. So, you know, Seth gives you writing advice, you listen. So, you know, in the book, there are these profiles, which I know you've read of different people. And so what we did was we took segments of the interviews. Originally, they were primarily transcripts of interviews adapted to being a book, uh, you know, being these profiles in the book. And we sent Seth his, and it was the week, the, the manuscript was due Monday. I sent this to Seth on Saturday or Sunday. And he said, I have some advice for you. And this is a big one. He said you should quote me and use your own opinions throughout. And I thought that's going to take another week, so I missed the deadline because of Seth Godin. Uh, but Thanks, Seth, but <laughs> you know what? And it's funny because I sent him a thank you note saying this. I was like, I missed one deadline in this process because of you, and because of it, the book is that much better. Because what's amazing is I found myself able to do something that I thought was impossible. I finished. I had to redo all seven of the profiles. I think there's six or seven. I had to read because I couldn't just redo Seth's so I had to redo all of them. So I emailed the editor at portfolio and I said, listen, Seth said this, it's actually good advice. Give me a week. I'll turn it around in a week. I'm like, is a week going to make the difference between you guys being able to ship on time and not? They're like, no. So that was one of those moments when you kind of said, okay, you know what? Like absolutely because you're committed to a standard, you know, you're committed to the end product. And if you're willing, if, if it means you have to suffer for a week to get through it, so be it. And so I canceled every meeting I had that week and I, I worked to get that all done.
0: What I want to say here is, um, and I just want to pat you on the back about that because you had developed a consistency in hitting those deadlines previously. Mm-hmm. Like it was okay. A lot of writers, when we would get into this process, we miss all the deadlines and it's like, we need another thing. And then it's a whole story. Yeah. And conversation.
1: I, I never miss deadlines. Um, I, I think that's the reputation I had so much so that even my editor was like, I know that you're hell bent on not missing deadlines. Uh, you know, I, I wanted that to be my reputation that you give me a deadline and I hit it. You know, I was very, very concerned about that.
0: So if there were... Besides this sort of making um, art that's unmistakable, but if there were one thing that you would want people to take away um, as that thing to put into practice to, to you know sure. get out in the waves, what would you want that one thing to be?
1: This is going to sound strangely weird, especially considering we're talking about a book. But I, I, I think it's to stop looking to authority figures to give you permission to do this thing that you want to do, or to give you approval to do this thing that you want to do, or to give you the validation you're seeking. Those three things I think get in people's way so much. Like, you know, we talk about how nice it was to get Seth Godin's approval on a book, but, you know, my motive in life shouldn't be to get Seth's approval. You know, like my mission in life is not to create things that Seth will think are high quality like that's, that's a recipe for disaster. That's just an added bonus. But to to say the whole thing has to be validated by, by somebody like Seth or somebody like you, or somebody like, you know, our friend Jonathan Fields or anybody, um, you know, I talked about this in the wayfinder talk, you know, what we often do is we look to these authority figures and we have this idea in our head that if we do exactly what they say, we will get the result that they've promised. Not only that, they will approve of the result that we produced. And that's just a, a, that right there totally kills it. Like that's how you lose what could make you unmistakable.
0: That's fantastic. Serenity, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure. This was awesome. Okay, Creative Giants. So you heard it from Srinidhi. What can you do today to pick yourself and stop waiting for someone else to, to give you that stamp or to tell you that you should be something? Your path to being unmistakable will always require you to pick that new place to go that no one else will tell you where to go. Think about that. And until next time, stand tall. If you enjoyed this episode, you'll also enjoyed episode three with Seth Godin. Sereni joined me for episode 28 as well. So there's more creative mojo there. If you're digging the Creative Giant show, I'd really appreciate it if you leave a rating or review on iTunes. If you're not familiar with how to do this, there's a walkthrough available on the podcast page on ProductiveFlourishing.com. Thanks.